to Please Leave Podcast, where you'll hear truly scary stories that you cannot get out of your head. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. God, humans are really stupid, aren't we? Don't get me wrong. There are plenty of exceptions, but now that I know the full extent of our collective stupidity, I'm surprised we even lasted this long. The coup was slow to start, which was genius on the part of the Raiders. I mean, it was all genius on their part, but for the past four years... The human race has been one big illustration of that metaphor about a frog in a pot that slowly boils. We didn't know how much trouble we were in until it was much too late. The Raiders knew who to target and when, and they slowly turned up the heat on us humans until we were left in a prison of our own making. Literally. It first started happening in the American South, mostly in Appalachia. It took several months for it to become a story, but eventually news headlines and social media posts started popping up about the strange rash of domestic killings in West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. By the time it hit the news, 750 men had killed their wives in various ways in just under three months. Most of the women were shot, but the rest were killed with whatever the men had access to, including their own two hands. One notable murderer shoved his wife of 22 years into his hog pen, where she was eaten alive. Another man drove back and forth over his wife an estimated 35 times with their Range Rover. Within six months, the number of men who had killed their spouses had jumped to over 3,500, and scientists and environmentalists from all over traveled to the region to try and figure out if there was a contaminant causing the sudden outbreak of homicidal behavior. The rest of the country paid attention to the story. But I don't think anyone thought too much of it, if I'm being honest. We were also used to hearing crazy stories out of rural areas that we just assumed this was more of that. And then the Oregon pocket opened up. Just like with the outbreak in the South, it took a few months to gain attention but a couple of months after we heard about the southern cases, the media started reporting that just over 2,000 men had also killed their wives in eastern Oregon and western Idaho. Experts divided between the two regions, frantically trying to figure out what the link was and what was turning these generally law-abiding men into cold-blooded killers all of a sudden. They studied the meat and produce that traveled between the states. They tested chemical levels and the birds that migrated north to south and theories sprouted about militia groups or QAnon offshoots, but no one was able to crack the code. And so the murders continued. Then the FBI had to intervene because the local governments didn't have the resources to deal with so much crime so quickly, and I'm sure that freaked them out too. After that, the raiders must have shifted their strategy because... 
I think they realized if they worked in concentrated pockets, it was easier for us to identify that something was wrong. There was too much attention on the areas, too many people investigating and too many outlets reporting. They didn't want to be detected by the greatest military power in the world because that could have ended the coup before it even really got started. So, after a couple of months, men were still killing their wives in those areas more than usual, just not at the same alarming rate that they had been. After things chilled out a bit in the Pacific Northwest and the South, the national average of murders of wives by their husbands started to rise, slowly but steadily. There had already been a 30% increase in homicide in the U.S. between 2019 and 2020, and tensions were incredibly high. Experts were all over social media explaining from various perspectives that this was all a result of the psychological strain of the last few years. Everyone had been through so much with the pandemic and politics and the economy, and so no one was really that surprised when the homicide rate rose, even as significantly as it did. And no one really noticed, or maybe they just didn't care, when the violence spread beyond the U.S. and international rates rose too. We were already facing a potential second Cold War and a rise in extremist groups globally, so it just made sense. People were angry and scared, and so, so many women were dying. Some countries only saw a slight increase in uxoricide. That's what it's called, by the way, when a man kills his wife. Some of the smaller, more peaceful countries just had a minor uptick, but all of the major countries of the world saw a shockingly steady growth now that I look back. The left was quick to blame the right, and the right was quick to blame gender confusion and the persecution of heterosis men. And looking back, the Raiders were so brilliant to start with the men that they did. They chose mostly traditional, conservative, physically strong men to kill their wives first. Men who were openly aggressive online and who fit the general profile of someone who could potentially snap under pressure and take it out on the person closest to them. There was very little attention given to the men themselves because we were so much more interested in fighting with each other. We were so happy to use the rising homicide rate as an illustration for whatever point we wanted to make. And so very few people bothered to actually study if all of these men really had the capacity to kill their spouses. Humans are humans after all. And I think if you looked into the mind of the majority of people to see if they had a capacity to murder, they would. We also have the capacity to shrug our shoulders and move on with our day when we hear some extremely disturbing events, as long as they don't affect us directly. And the powers that be were more than happy to expand on the prison system when the existing prisons got too full. Thrilled, in fact. By the end of the second year, most major world powers had started to build super prisons to accommodate the steady influx of prisoners. The super prisons could house up to 20,000 inmates using a system of housing annexes that could be opened up or closed as the population fluctuated. I've even heard a rumor that China and Russia both had facilities that can hold upwards of 100,000. Each annex was made up of rooms of bunks that were separated by polyethylene rope-like cages. The cages are almost as indestructible as steel bars, but require a tiny fraction of the cost to construct. 
Super prisons do require that upwards of 50 men share each section, which under normal circumstances would be a human rights disaster. But rules are rules and violent men need to be locked away, and so the prisons were approved and constructed in record time. Abolitionists lost their minds, of course, but the majority of people had already blocked them out by then. And once the world opened up after the pandemic, there was no extra time for people to pay attention to radical ideas, and so they faded into the background. The raiders were also smart enough to target the loudest dissenters early on, so they were sent to prison in the first waves. And there was no one left to organize against what was happening, and so the violence continued and the prisons filled, and we barely did anything about it. They finally got to me after the third strike of the middle class. I mean, they did a pretty good job of mixing the classes just enough so that it wouldn't be too suspicious. But for the most part, they started by targeting poor and rural people and then slowly worked their way up the tax brackets until they had enough of us incarcerated that they would be safe to strike. They suspected that the people at the top were sadistic enough to turn a blind eye to the violence and mass incarceration as long as they continued to get rich off of it. And they were right. My guess is that they also found a way to tip off the top 10% so that they were sure to invest in the prison industrial complex and the various cottage industries that sprung up as a result. Their wealth must have been incomprehensible by the time the coup was complete. The middle class must have been the trickiest part for them, but by then they had already worked out the kinks with the poor and must have felt confident that the police and politicians would be more than happy to do their bidding. And so we went down without much of a fight. I finally started to pay attention when the owner of my gym stabbed his wife 63 times on a Tuesday morning after breakfast. He was the friendliest man I knew so warm and full of energy, and the community went wild with speculations about untreated mental illness and how you never really knew what someone was going through. Then my neighbor, Brian, drowned his wife in their jacuzzi tub. My coworker, Todd, pushed his wife off of a cliff in front of most of their family on a Thanksgiving Day hike, and then it was my turn. After I heard about Todd at work, I brought it up with my wife, Molly, once the kids had gone to bed one night. I asked her if she and the kids should maybe rent a place that I didn't know about for a couple of weeks to be safe, just in case this was a real thing. Oh my God, honey, you can't be serious, she said, and muted the TV program we'd been watching. Well, it's just going to get worse, I argued. I don't think this is just some crackpot online thing. We know these guys. These guys are not murderers. I mean, Brian? Todd? Todd and Beth were the happiest couple we knew. It, it just doesn't make sense. I trailed off thinking about how Todd would always answer his phone when Beth called, even if we were in the middle of an important meeting or presentation. I always answer if it's my lawyer or my lady, he would always say, and I knew he meant it with 100% sincerity. I know it's scary, but we don't really know those guys, Molly argued. Shelley told me that Beth told her that Todd was into some pretty weird sex stuff. And I also read something today that said this is probably a symptom of long COVID. 
They found inflammation in the brains of people who have COVID more than once, and so it's causing really aggressive behavior, especially in people with pre-existing conditions like diabetes or whatever. You haven't gotten COVID somehow, and you don't have any pre-existing conditions, so we're fine, honey. I promise. She patted my hand, and I tried to lighten the mood by saying, Does chocolate addiction count as a pre-existing condition? She smiled that smile that made me fall in love with her in the first place and said, Speaking of which, she then jumped off the couch and retrieved a carton of cookies from the kitchen, then returned to sit next to me. I forgot that I impulse bought these today. She cracked open the plastic clamshell full of overly large chocolate chip cookies, and we dropped the subject of me potentially killing the love of my life, which I will regret until the day I die. And then on New Year's Day, I woke up out of what I can only describe as a trance or a blackout to the soul-splitting sound of my children screaming. As I came to, my immediate thought was that they were in trouble, as there was an unmistakable terror in their screams. And so I, of course, wanted to save them. But as the world came into focus, I quickly realized that they were screaming because of me. As I regained consciousness, I realized that I was in the middle of swinging an axe, and just before I could drop it, it made contact with something fleshy, and there was an unmistakable cracking sound of bone snapping under the weight of the tool. I threw the axe across the room and stumbled backward and onto the ground at the foot of my bed. The sun wasn't fully up yet, but I could tell in the dim light that I was covered in what I assumed was blood and my hands were slick with it as I held them up in front of my face. I turned to my children to comfort them, but they screamed with a renewed terror, and the oldest one pulled the youngest out of the room and away from me. I dragged myself to the bed and pulled myself up just enough so that I could peer over and into the horror that I'd created. In the place where my wife slept every night of our lives, there was a broken, bloody pile of flesh and bone protruding from the top of the holiday pajamas our children had picked out for Molly for Christmas. I collapsed back onto the floor and it was over for me. When they brought me into the station, there were so many other men. They had to leave us handcuffed to furniture up and down the hallways and in the offices and interrogation rooms. I heard one of the officers mumble something about how New Year's always brings out the worst in people, and it was all I could do to not scream at him, that this was not just a bunch of drunks who had gotten a little out of control. I scanned the room I'd been left in, and everywhere I looked, the bloodshot eyes of devastated men stared back at me. Most of the men screamed and protested and wailed about their dead wives, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter why hundreds of men had killed their wives on the same night. The simple fact was that they had, and so there was a protocol and there would be consequences. I ended up in a super prison two states away, and I've been able to watch the rest of the coup play out from my overcrowded bunk. The one upside of what happened is that none of the men in here with me are actually violent people. Well, at least for now. And so it's relatively safe considering how many of us are packed in here. Pretty soon after they got to me, the news started reporting on a suspected zombie virus that was infecting men's brains and making them homicidal, specifically toward their wives. 
And once again, extremist groups started preaching that this was all a result of women becoming too modern and too empowered and that men were just sick of it and were reclaiming their roles in the household. Others blamed immigration and gender confusion and over-policing and toxic masculinity and white supremacy and the homosexual agenda and everything you can think of except for what it actually was. There was no possible way that any living person could have guessed what it actually was. There were essentially two more waves of mass murders after mine. And the final massacre occurred about five months after I went to prison. The raiders attacked at midnight on a Thursday and slaughtered every adult person in the entire world who wasn't in prison while they slept in their beds. Just over four billion people were slaughtered overnight and the rest of the population of the planet was already incarcerated. The raiders just slowly manipulated us into imprisoning ourselves until there were just barely more of them than there were of us. And then they finished their plan. On the morning after the massacre, we all woke up to sounds of the guards being murdered. The shouts and grunts bounced off the enormous cement walls and after a few minutes, everything went quiet again. All of the men in my annex rushed forward to the cages to try and catch a glimpse of what was happening. And before long, we heard the sound of the main door to the annex unlocking and it swung open on its massive hinges. A moment later, a line of about 10 of them filed in to take inventory of us. It's hard to describe how it felt to see the raiders for the first time. At first, I thought they were just small men, but then I realized that their skin had a sort of gray tint to it and their clothes were ill-fitting and much too tight. Now that I know what they are, I'm surprised they wear clothes at all. But my guess is that they didn't want to send us into a total panic and so tried their best to imitate us to keep us calm. And I think that they might actually be partially human, or at least they were at some point tens or hundreds of thousands of years ago. When they first walked in, they just silently scanned the group of us standing at the cages. And when they seemed satisfied they'd gotten the information they needed, they turned around and left, the main door locking loudly behind them. The room erupted as soon as they were gone, as 50 men simultaneously started speculating about who they were and what was going on. A handful of my bunkmates thought they might be militiamen, and that they were so small and strange-looking because they were inbred. Others thought they were some kind of teen gang who had taken over the prison to make a point. And then a few others were confident they were South American immigrants based on their size and skin color. The men argued and shouted and threw out theories until one of my favorite bunkmates, Jake, stood up and shouted at the top of his lungs, They don't have noses! The voices immediately started to die down and the rest of the men turned to Jake. The realization of what he had said appearing like a wave across their faces. You guys, they don't have noses, he said again with resolve in his voice, but a mixture of fear and resignation in his own expression. The room was silent for a moment as we all contemplated what he'd said and heads slowly turned to nod in agreement as we took in the information. He was right. They didn't have noses. None of them did. They were small, probably just over five feet tall. They had gray skin and tight clothes. 
and I'm not sure how we missed it at first glance, but none of them had noses. If I had to describe them at the time, I would have called them men, but now I, I know that they're more like androgynous humanoids. Jake's right, a guy named Gary chimed in. Those little freaks don't have noses. And by the sounds of it, they're in charge now. Gary slumped onto a bench in resignation, and the rest of us continued to sit in stunned silence while a slow prickle of fear began to spread between us as we collectively wondered what the fuck was happening. For the first six months, they didn't let us out of the annex. Meals were served in our bunks without a word from our captors. They simply brought the rolling trays of food into the middle of enormous rooms, then unlocked our individual cages once they were safely on the other side of the main locked door. Whoever delivered the food always had a semi-automatic weapon slung across their body, which looked laughably large against their tiny frames. The food they served was always a grotesque approximation of actual meals and always seemed like a mushy mass of unseasoned carbohydrates and protein. But they kept us alive and so we ate them. Each section of the annex had its own restroom, so there was no need for the raiders to interact with us outside of keeping us alive. As tense as we all were, we were careful not to take it out on each other because we were all too afraid of what would happen if someone got hurt. Best case scenario, they'd leave the injured party in the annex to treat their own wounds. Worst case, they'd take us out and we'd be forced to interact with one of them, one-on-one. -on -one. We had no idea what they were planning. And there was a feeling of safety in numbers between the men, even though we had no idea what we were up against or if we'd actually be able to protect each other and ourselves. We started calling them the Raiders during that time because we weren't sure what else to call them. We speculated that they'd had something to do with the homicides and wild theories swirled about what our future held as we waited for their next move. They hadn't turned on the TV since they took over, so we had no idea what was happening to the rest of the world. But when no one came to save us, we assumed they were probably in charge everywhere. We weren't sure whether or not they controlled the world yet, but it seemed pretty likely that they at least held the United States. Then, after six months, they slowly started to let us out to resume our duties around the prison. I'm not sure if they were sick of keeping everything running themselves or they just felt confident that we weren't going to revolt. So they started to let us into other sections of the prison to fulfill various jobs. On the first day that they summoned us, a group of five of them entered our annex, all weighed down by the oversized guns hanging from their thin shoulders. And once they'd assembled, one of them started calling our names. Johnson. It croaked, and its voice sounded like a child who had been smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for its entire life. It was clear enough, but shaky and clipped, and matched their appearance perfectly. Almost human, but not. It called out seven names, mine included. And the group of us were led into the cafeteria where we were instructed to prepare dinner while they kept watch. I studied them the best I could as we clumsily prepared dinner for the annex with whatever we could find in the massive coolers and pantry. We settled on a simple spaghetti with marinara, and my mouth watered in anticipation of my first real food in six months as I stirred the massive pot. As I cooked, I stole glances at the raider standing closest to me, 
And the best way I can describe their appearance is that they looked like a sullen teen. They had a thin, drawn, expressionless face with large, dark eyes, no nose, and a thin mouth. They had a short patch of fuzz on top of their head in place of their hair, and a slight build. If they hadn't overthrown society and weren't keeping thousands of grown men captive, I would say that they were just about the least threatening things I'd ever encountered. Despite the stress of our unknown futures, we were all so excited for a change of scenery and better food that we fell pretty seamlessly into routines with our new guards. Different groups of men were assigned to different parts of the prison, and we'd meet up at the end of our days and share our observations, which weren't much. The raiders were still and silent and expressionless for the most part. They would reach for their weapons if someone got too loud or aggressive, but Otherwise, they just stood and watched us without a word. There was one incident where three men rushed at one of the raiders to attack, but all three of the men collapsed before they reached it. A couple of seconds later, the raider collapsed too, and they were all carried off and were never seen again. This led us all to believe that the raiders had some type of telekinetic power, but otherwise we were completely in the dark as to who they were or what they were capable of. And other than that incident, we all lived in a weird state of relative peace. It's been a good lesson to me, that fear. Fear of the unknown is the most effective way to control people. Not that I'll ever be able to use that knowledge, but it was an interesting revelation nonetheless. And then one day I got up the courage to talk to the raider that always stood by the door a couple of feet away from where I worked every day. Morning. I said to it as casually as I could as I entered the room, and it turned to look at me, but remained silent. A couple of hours later, my hand slipped and I fumbled with an enormous can of tomatoes, which splashed a fair amount of the red contents all over the front of my shirt. <laughs> Reminds me of when I murdered my wife, I joked before I could help myself, and I presented my hands and chest to the raider as glops of tomato fell onto the counter in front of me. I laughed at my horrifying joke, and I could have sworn I saw a tiny smile form on the raider's face. I was elated by the breakthrough, and it heightened my resolve to get one of them to talk to me. Luckily, the same raider guarded me day in and day out, and over the next couple of weeks, I made it a point to include it in my one-sided observations and conversations. And then one day, out of the blue, it laughed. I guess my raider is a fan of physical comedy because I was in the middle of doing a Dave Letterman impersonation using a dishcloth to represent his now massive beard, and my raider laughed. It sort of sounded like someone coughing quietly through an electric fan, but it was unmistakably laughter. It stopped almost as quickly as it started, but I took the opportunity to engage with the raider. I'm Paul, I said and smiled at it. It studied me warily out of the side of its eye, and after several seconds, I didn't think it was going to respond, but just as I turned to go back to my food prep, I heard a faint voice say, Gregor. The voice was wobbly and vaguely masculine, and I immediately responded, Gregor? <laughs> That's a great name. It's nice to meet you, man. I immediately regretted the man part because I had no idea what Gregor's gender was, or any of the raiders for that matter. But Gregor just gave me a little nod, which I took as a good sign, and I went back to my work with a smile on my face. 
and every day I got Gregor to open up a little bit more. I was careful not to push it, and for the first several weeks, he would just return my hellos or respond with simple yeses and noes to my occasional questions. But after a couple of months, he really started to open up and have actual conversations with me. At first, I learned that he had a wife but no kids. Then eventually, I got him to admit that he, he loved television because it didn't exist where he came from. Then we started talking about his favorite shows, and it was a weird mix of reality TV, British crime procedurals, and game shows, but I could work with that. Then we moved on to music, and then one day we got on the subject of hobbies, and weirdly, that was how I got him to start to tell me what the fuck was going on. When I asked him what he did for hobbies, he cocked his head, confused, and repeated the word back to me. Hobbies. You know, I said encouragingly, what activities do you do in your spare time, except TV, of course? We don't have hobbies, he responded matter-of-factly. We've been working on this for my whole life. He waved his small hand around the room to indicate the coup. Are we the only ones? I asked trepidatiously and held my breath for his answer. He stared off into space for a moment and then shook his head no. I continued to hold my breath as he opened his mouth and started to explain. Gregor didn't know how long the plan to attack us had been forming, but he'd been hearing about it since he was born. His people had been planning the takeover for decades and had devoted all their free time to organizing and strategizing so that when the time came, they had every single detail in place. He explained that his people have the ability to control the minds of others, but in a very limited capacity. They're also very physically weak, which is obvious just by looking at them. And so they had to be very strategic about how they would conquer the human race. They knew that they could never physically overpower us or go to war with us, not to mention that they were initially outnumbered by about three billion. So they had to figure out a way to neutralize close to half of our population so that they could then kill the rest. And when they learned that we put each other in prisons like animals, they were horrified but excited because it solved the problem of how they would contain and control the rest of us. The answer was that we would take care of that part for them. Where did you come from? I interrupted to ask at one point, expecting him to point toward the sky to indicate he was an extraterrestrial, like they did in all my favorite movies as a kid. He blinked at me a few times and simply said, Earth, we were the first. We hide, mostly in the water. His answer was so much more destabilizing than if he'd said he was from outer space. The thought that there was a whole race of people living on our planet undetected for God knows how long scared me more than anything had in my life, even murdering my wife or going to jail or the raiders appearing in the first place. It challenged everything. Everything I had ever known, it was just fucking scary to wrap my mind around all of the things that existed that I had no concept of. It was the first time in my entire life that I realized my own insignificance and the magnitude of my ego. 
It was humbling, and it was devastating, and it was absolutely terrifying. But it also explained how they had carried out the plan so successfully. Their proximity to us, and the endless pipes and channels they could travel through to access us. It made so much sense when I thought about it. And the plan was so simple. Each of the raiders only had one shot to use their telekinesis to take control of the human men and make them kill their wives, one man at a time. If the raiders tried to use their power more than once, or with too many people at a time, they risked dying or becoming severely disabled, like the time the three men charged at the raider. The raider was able to overpower them, but almost died as a result. Gregor explained that even though the raider lived, it would be severely disabled for the rest of its life. And so they used us against ourselves. They knew that enough of the systems in the world had become so punitive that they could slowly make us incarcerate our own people so they didn't have to. They used their one shot at manipulating us to make the men of the world murder their wives, starting with the strongest and the most violent. When it was our time, one of them would find us, take temporary control of our bodies, and make us kill our wives. And by the time they were ready to attack, the only people left free were the weakest men and remaining women, so they were easy to sneak up on and murder while they slept. They had also reduced the free population enough that there was one of them to every one of us, so the attack would be simultaneous, and we didn't stand a chance. Why didn't you just have the women kill the men since they are weaker and would be easier to overpower when you attacked? I asked. Because they would never have let so many other women go to prison, he said in his usual factual tone. And he was right. Women would have intervened quickly if it was men who were being killed. But a deadly combination of fear and years of becoming desensitized allowed the raiders to carry out the plan to completion. And what about the kids? I asked even though I didn't really want to know. I had pushed thoughts of my children down so deep inside of myself in an attempt to stay sane and survive, and I wasn't sure I was ready to find out their fate. But I just had to know. You're not going to kill them too, are you? I asked with a tremble in my voice. Gregor shook his head and said, No, they learn. He paused for a moment to select his next words. They're learning the work, he said with a satisfied nod and gestured toward my workstation to indicate manual labor. And us? I asked, verging on tears. W what will happen to the adults? I thought that knowing my fate would alleviate some of my fear, but I couldn't have been more wrong. Nothing could have possibly prepared me for Gregor's answer. Once the children know the work... Gregor said, and gestured toward my workstation for a second time. You are. He trailed off again and paused while he searched for the right word. You are our pets.
This story was written by Courtney Eck and narrated by Graham Hayward. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more scary stories that you cannot get out of your head, please join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com, and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. This has been a Two Penguins Media production. Quack. Thank you.